0: Welcome to Budget Watchdog, all federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. Cut through the partisan rhetoric and talking points for the facts about what's being talked about, bandied about, and
1: pushed to Washington. Brought to you by taxpayers for common sense. And now, the host of Budget Watchdog AF. TCS President, Steve Ellis.
0: Welcome to All American Taxpayers Seeking Common Sense. You've made it to the right place. For over 25 years, TCS, that's Taxpayers for Common Sense, has served as an independent, nonpartisan budget watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. We believe in fiscal policy for America that is based on facts. We believe in transparency and accountability because no matter where you are in the political spectrum, no one wants to see their tax dollars wasted. Today on the podcast, we're back with the latest evidence of the increasing cost to taxpayers from climate change. Follow the money, they say. Well, loyal listeners of this show know that that is all we do around here. Follow the money. And here to shine a light on the fat stacks of taxpayers' cash that is being laid down on climate in 2023 is TCS Senior Policy Analyst, Josh Sewell. Welcome back to the podcast, Josh. Hey,
1: glad to be back. It's been a while. It has. It has. You know, you're about to lose your frequent flyer status. I keep getting a paycheck, so I know you didn't completely forget about me. (laughs) Never.
0: So, Josh, even before the ink was dry on the debt ceiling deal, lawmakers were demanding a separate supplemental bill to increase defense spending and FEMA's Disaster Relief Fund has incurred nearly $19 billion in obligations this calendar year and is expected to be fully exhausted by next month, right when hurricane season heats up. Give us the update prognosis, doctor. How much is climate really adding to taxpayers'
1: tab in 2023? In 2023? Who knows? It's not even August yet, Steve.
0: True, but the fiscal year ends September 30th, so we're most of the way there. How does it look so
1: far? Pricey. You know, I'd say after initially predicting a near normal hurricane season back a couple months ago, forecasters are now expecting warmer waters to make it busier than normal. So, yeah, hurricane season technically starts June 1st. Um, It's really August into the fall where the bulk of the activity happens. And when you're saying warmer water, I mean, they're talking 100
0: degree water off of the coast of Florida. I mean, that's that's. That's hot tub temperature, and you know you're you're absolutely right that it's sometimes these s- storm seasons they start slow but then they get big. And so Katrina was at the end of August in 2005, and then that year you also had Rita in September and Wilma in October, both huge storms that have had their their names retired. Superstorm Sandy was in October of 2012. Hurricane Maria was in September of 2017. So you're you're absolutely right that it's the the back end of these seasons and and you can't get complacent.
1: Yeah, and hurricanes are the most obvious natural disaster. Like they're they're massive, they cause a lot of damage, but we got to be clear that there's been plenty of other non-hurricane disasters that have occurred this calendar and fiscal year. Right? There's still significant drought in the Midwest, down in the plains and in northwest. Uh, I just went through Missouri for a couple of weeks and it's definitely dry and while out of the West apparently is no longer in drought, according to the drought monitor, in a lot of those places, it was replaced by near historic flooding. And so, like you said, 100 degree water, there's been 100 degree temperatures for 40 straight days in some places, even more than that now. And it's 100 degrees outside right now here in Washington, DC area. And so last I looked, uh, FEMA had already recorded 41 major disaster declarations uh, and the Secretary of Agriculture himself has designated nearly half the country as eligible for disaster assistance.
0: Yeah. I mean, the heat's no joke. And, and certainly, and it's not even been as bad around here as it has been in, in Texas and other parts of the South where it's just been um, staggering and without, without stop, uh, the, the, the so-called heat dome um, holding that down. And so these are, and when you have like high heat and drought, then you have a chance of wildfires too, to bring another one up there. And heck. A wildfire that wasn't even in the United States, uh, one that was in Canada, was affecting the air quality all along the eastern seaboard, which um, that, has, that has those implications too. So, so do we, we, we have any idea that some of the fiscal implications for 2023?
1: Yeah. So everyone's favorite, federally subsidized crop insurance has already paid over $19 billion in loss payments uh, for various losses. And there's talk of appropriating even more emergency spending on top of that ACT money. And FEMA's disaster relief fund has incurred nearly $19 billion also in obligations so far this calendar year. Uh, And I can tell you it's going to go even higher. And the last projection was that that fund would be completely exhausted before the end of August. Uh, So right when those hurricanes are likely to start heating up. And also, as we shouldn't forget that flood insurance, uh, the authorization for that program, it's done at the end of this fiscal year as well. And so it's going to have to be renewed. And finally, I'd say you mentioned wildfires. I mean, there's going to be even more wildfire spending. Exactly how much is, is we'll find out, but it's, there's more on the way.
0: Yeah, it seems um, inevitable these days, and, and it seems like the costs are inevitable and tens of billions of dollars. I mean, is this, the, is this
1: normal? Well, I mean, back in June, you may remember we released a report paying the price about taxpayers footing the bill for increasing costs of climate change. And unfortunately, according to what we found, this is basically normal spending in response to disasters is massively increasing mm-hmm. podcast
0: listeners. We told you about that, uh, that report back in uh, episode 47. You can give that a listen again. Um, uh, and that podcast, we were joined by our allies at E2 um, to discuss that report along with some of the work that they are done. But um, Josh, you were not on that podcast. So let's hear your thoughts about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great product. I mean, we all worked on it. Let's say Sheila, Autumn, Mike, all the folks you've heard on these podcasts, basically. We looked at federal spending mostly in the disaster response recovery. And I'd like people to know, I've talked to some folks about the report. It's not 100% exhaustive of every single dollar we've spent. Yeah, we acknowledge that. But it is an accounting of the major categories. And I think it really does show how disaster spending has really increased uh, over the last few years.
0: So, Josh, um, remind uh, uh, our listeners of some of the findings.
1: Yeah. So, again, I say there's solid evidence that climate change is increasing costs for taxpayers. That's the, the, the most important part of that report. So, you can just look at the numbers. Presidentially declared disasters have tripled from 200 in the 60s to 600 in the first decade of this, la- of this current century. And it's I think it's really important to look at 2017, the year 2017 alone. We as taxpayers spent more than $120 billion on disaster response and relief, which would have made disaster the second largest current agency, trailing only the Department of Defense.
0: Yeah, wow. I mean, I know that we, we talked about it. It was, um, I think the average cost of each year now is uh, $62 billion, um, which was um, in in the last decade when we looked at that, the average over the last five years was 35% more than it was the previous five years. And so that's a clear indication that the numbers are are, are going up. And, and it's really across the board. It's in a broad series of categories. It's not just hurricane, right, Josh?
1: Yeah, it's in many of those programs or agencies that we already mentioned on this podcast. So flood insurance, farm bill spending, FEMA, yeah, you name it. And it's not just them, it's also infrastructure. And something that I hadn't really thought of too much, to be honest, is the military faces increased costs due to natural disasters. They have a large footprint uh, of real estate and a lot of stuff on coasts and, and flood prone areas. And it's just amazing to me that once we ran these numbers, if you took the average amount spent, so 2017 was a bad year. But if you take the average between 2018 and 22, it's still disaster response spending for climate change. It would have been the fifth largest agency in the government. So smaller than the Pentagon still in Health and Human Services, the VA and HUD, which are big agencies.
0: But bigger than state, foreign aid, education, ag, treasury, you name it.
1: Yeah, things that we spend a lot of time debating here, and some people really get wrapped around the axle. Turns out climate change is even bigger than many of those agencies
0: and you know you mentioned about uh DOD and its big footprint i mean that's a it's they've got 1.3 trillion dollars worth of real estate around the world you know and and its real estate is in really highly vulnerable areas you know it's along the coast um which is risk of flooding it's in the interior of the country where you've got drought and wildfire risks Um, And, you know, this is something where they're having to come to grips with um, spending more. I think that one of the things that if I recall from our report that we complained about is that DOD is not as forthcoming about where their costs are, where their vulnerabilities are, some of which I'm sure has some national security implications. But by the same token, it's really important that we um, really um, understand so that we can tackle um, the, the costs appropriately. You're listening to Budget Watchdog All-Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. I'm your host, Steve Ellis, and we continue now with TCS Senior Policy Analyst, Josh Sewell. So, Josh, we kind of hinted at this at the top of the show, but the lawmakers are, have started discussing adopting an emergency supplemental uh, spending package uh, in response to national disasters. And and as you indicated, I mean, they have to replenish the, the, the DRF, the Disaster Relief Fund, um, before the start of the fiscal year,
1: right? Yeah, I think you do. Uh, but refilling the DRF doesn't necessarily require an emergency supplement. So, like, Like I said, FEMA currently projects a nearly $9 billion shortfall by the end of September. That's give or take what happens between now and then. There could be even more money needed. But right now, Congress is debating 2024 regular appropriations. So- relief could be tacked on there <laughs>
0: but uh even even today we're hearing they're having troubles they're not able to uh move on to so they've gotten one the house has gotten one bill done military construction veterans affairs and they were trying to move to a second bill today and it sounds like they're gonna adjourn for august without actually getting another one of the dozen spending bills done which that one is still more, one more than the Senate has done. So I guess you could say that. So, you know, I'm pointing out the difficulties of getting these individual regular spending bills done. What's the problem with doing an emergency supplemental if you, in the absence
1: of that? So one of the big problems with an emergency spending bill is that they tend to attract a bunch of other spending or even policy priorities that are not necessarily emergencies and are not you know, germane to the, to the issue at hand. So supplementals are must pass, right? And they're emergencies. And so they are by their nature deemed a budgetary emergency, meaning the dollars don't count against any budget caps.
0: Right. And even though there aren't um, necessarily... Well, I guess there is a cap. There is an agreement um, in the uh, in the debt ceiling deal of how much they're going to spend, um, which we know that some members in in the House Republican conference want to spend less than that. And that's part of their reason why they're having trouble, even though they have a top line number agreed to. Um, But, you know, also, as you mentioned, uh, these these supplemental appropriations attract. Um, attract flies. They attract other pieces of of legislation. And so certainly, as we talked about at the top, people, the defense hawks were already saying that they needed more money. They needed a supplemental that um, on top of what was the agreed upon top line for defense and non-defense discretionary. And certainly, you know, Ukraine plays into that mix as well. So there's kind of a push. Uh, And uh, we joined with several other um, fiscal conservative organizations. Uh, Listeners, you can check that out on our website, taxpayer.net. And a letter saying there should be no defense appropriation supplemental, that there is absolutely no need after the years of increasing funding for the Pentagon, and that um, this is a, a level that they can um, certainly live with. So, you know, and I, I think that t- to your point, I mean, if you really did need to have an infusion of cash for the DRF, I mean, you could do that as a as a straightaway solo budget measure um, if some sort of disaster occurs.
1: Um, yeah, exactly exactly and I think that's one of the major problems we have with with the increase in emergency spending in response to natural disasters is yes disasters are occurring more often and yes they do appear to be more extreme uh, but there's also a little bit of disaster creep and so in that just means that things that may have been considered a disaster or have been paid for by someone other than the federal taxpayers are increasingly paid for um, by us we could do a whole podcast on on exactly you know what should be a disaster what should be an emergency, and I think we will do that someday. But right now, if we need to replenish the DRF, it just takes a quick act of Congress. Well, they could both do it if they really wanted to, but the uh, the problem with the supplemental is, is it's seen as an opportunity to get a bunch of other things that you couldn't get through, either this regular order or if you really had the light of day on it.
0: That old, uh, you know, Rahm Emanuel uh, expression, uh, you know, never let a... An emergency go to waste. That, that there's basically an opportunity here. And then you know, speaking of opportunities, you know, we've talked about how, um, you know, no matter how the uh, 2023 uh, hurricane disaster season turns out, um, one thing that we know is is that there's certainly an opportunity for lawmakers to do a better job of budgeting for these inevitabilities. Um, you know, we don't know from year to year what disasters are going to occur. Um, and uh, we don't know how, how or where they're going to occur, but we do know they are going to occur inevitably. And um, TCS has long called for lawmakers to improve how we plan for uh, disasters. So Josh, what are some of the uh, investments, what sort of investments top our list of recommendations?
1: Well, I think the, big, the biggest one and the first one is to just plan. Like, like you said, we know we're going to spend money. And we could do a better job of planning for the spending of that money. Yeah. And to me, this is the part that I just can't get through my brain. It's we just need to acknowledge something's going to happen. So let's raise the revenue to pay for it. <laughs> like, And I just I looked up some numbers on the DRF at the FEMA's Disaster Relief Fund. So between 1992 and 2021, the DRF was provided $381 billion in budget authority. And if you adjust that for inflation, it's $470 billion in today's dollars. But three quarters of that came from, quote, emergency, unquote, supplemental spending. I mean, clearly, if we're having to cover three quarters of a tab with emergency dollars, we need to set aside more dollars. Like we're not planning properly for what we're going to spend. So let's start with that. Let's acknowledge what the actual costs are. And let's actually plan for the likelihood that we're going to spend it so that we don't then have to do this last second emergency spending.
0: So, I mean, and, and there have been I mean, I'll give uh, lawmakers a little bit of credit. I mean, there have been some changes, you know, and the Budget Control Act of 2011. They sort of required the DRF to start or Congress to start appropriating it at a like a rolling 10 year average with the high and the low year thrown out. Um, so that's something that I'd be curious to see. You know, And we can talk about this in a future podcast, what it looks like, um, you know, since. 2011 2012 but it's absolutely correct that if you plan ahead and you kind of and that and this also goes to communities and kind of the demands on communities and states and that they know they're going to um have sort of, they know what their risks are in the certain disasters. You know, I mean, Harvey in 2017 hit Houston, but Ike hit Houston just a few years before that, and they should have known exactly what what could happen and how
1: to respond and how to be do better um, with Harvey than that than happened with Ike. Exactly. And that's why part of this, when we have this disaster response, especially in the disaster recovery phase, when we're not doing the immediate saving of lives because of the response, is we got to make sure that the assistance comes in a manner that it helps communities mitigate the effects in the future. So it helps them become better prepared. And so you have to be more resilient to disasters, like building things exactly how they were to the exact same standards isn't necessarily how you should do it if that's what failed, right? So we got to figure out how to do it better. And so I think that's a big, that's another big step.
0: You know, you can say the word, Josh, we need to pre-spawn uh, to future disasters, which each
1: uh, dollar of disaster relief. I didn't want to preempt your uh, the word that you have coined in Washington, D.C. All right. Fair point. Fair point. So
0: what's next? I mean, what's your, do you take your silver ball, Josh? I mean, what are you seeing happening here? The remainder of the you know, in the next month and the rest of this fiscal year uh, and then into the into the beginning of uh, fiscal year twenty twenty four?
1: Well, I think it's, uh, the numbers don't lie, I think it's likely we're going to see a big emergency spending bill. Uh, the question is, how big is it going to be? Um, after today, well, actually today's, but this week's happenings in the House and the Senate, I don't see regular order happening in the next month and a half, especially since they're leaving on Friday for and not coming back till almost mid-September. Uh, that doesn't leave a lot of time to get a lot done. So I imagine we'll see Come September, we'll have a, a supplemental spending bill, and the question is going to be: Is it going to be focused on true need, or is it going to become one of these um, trains that just carries everything? And I can tell you, in agriculture, it's 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 going to be some money we don't need. Uh, frankly, it'll be the seventh year in a row, seventh year in a row that we've had an emergency spending bill for agriculture, uh, and the farm bills only last for five. So these emergency programs. They have a longer shelf life now than the actual farm bill itself. So, I mean, I'm a little not optimistic in that realm, but I think those of us who are a little, while we do see still have these sort of calm waters in the Atlantic and we're not dealing with an emergency hurricane right now, um, I'm optimistic that some folks uh, can do some some planning ahead. So we can at least sort of look at what we have done in the past. Where How did we respond to the past hurricanes? Uh, and how can we... Uh, in the short term, uh, meet out that money in a supplemental, uh, maybe not in all one massive amount of money, but uh, just what we absolutely need and then come back with more later if we need it. To basically do some of this reevaluation of our past work, which is one, something we've long called for lawmakers to do is we don't oppose emergency spending, but we oppose doing it every year without looking back and saying, what worked last time, what didn't, and how can we try to make things better in the future? Because as we all say, this isn't just about money. This is also about lives. That's the most important thing in the emergency spending is this stuff puts people in harm's way if we don't do it correctly. Exactly.
0: And, you know, you you have... um... You know, you have the uh, the Transportation Safety Board, if you have a train derailment or a small plane crash, and they do a whole analysis of what exactly happened. We have a major disaster hitting major cities spending billions of dollars. And there is no um, look back and no other review to say, hey, this is what we did right, this is what we did wrong, this is how it should be responded to in the future. Um, just doesn't, doesn't happen, at least not nearly enough. Um, so Josh, I was just, uh, uh, recently talking to a lawmaker that, um, has been around, uh, been in office longer than I've been at TCS. And so that's a long time. Uh, and, um, he said that he didn't see any way that they were not going to have a government shutdown, um, here in the beginning of the fiscal year, that they're not going to get the spending bills done, that there's people who are cheerleading for that. And, uh, so I'm curious what your thought is on that too.
1: I try not to think that far ahead, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> uh, that's not an unreasonable expectation in this Congress, um, however, it only takes a handful of folks to gum up the works in both the House and the Senate right now, uh, and I can see where that where that lawmaker would think so um, I'm an optimist. I think cooler heads will prevail uh, at the very least to avoid the shutdown we're, yeah we're not going to get the they're not going to get the spending bills done um, but I think avoiding a shutdown, I think there's enough institutional memory of what has happened the last couple of times that I there's enough folks that that want to avoid that. But I've been wrong a couple of times. So I hope I'm not wrong this time. I hope you're not wrong, too, because as uh, podcast listeners know, government shutdowns
0: are incredibly wasteful. I mean, all those civil servants get paid back pay. They don't do their work. And it's not a criticism of them. It's a criticism of the system. And it doesn't save a dime. It actually costs uh, taxpayers money. All right. Josh Sewell, thank you for joining me on the podcast again today. Happy to do it. And just a tease to the future, if you want to hear more about ag spending and, and, and ag policy, we've got you covered because we're going to be talking the farm bill coming up um, with Josh. So back to trying to establish his gold level, platinum level, frequent flyer status. And also uh, Sheila Korth, our, our, our another colleague that works on ag policy. Well, there you have it, podcast listeners, the increasing disaster intensity, the increasing cost to taxpayers and the uh, volatility brought on by climate change and how it requires and increased federal focus on preparing for future disasters. This is The Frequency. Mark it on your dial. Subscribe and share and know this. Taxpayers for Common Sense has your back, America. We read the bills, monitor the earmarks, and highlight those wasteful programs that poorly spend our money and shift long-term risk to taxpayers. We'll be back with a new episode soon, and I hope you'll meet us right here to learn
1: more.